Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Stunned. Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, The league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. It feels like we've been off for a million days now, and it's only been a week. Yes, it really does. Uh, and it was a total blindside yesterday, too, because you go from, you know, three days without having games, and it's like, oh, here's, you know, three games in quick succession. And I'm like, okay, all right, well, I will, uh, I will get this together all batting down the hatches and I watched everything yesterday and caught up and watched the I think the Hawks game was the first game I've watched live since January it's like around there um I guess before well today's two questions to uh but I do want to just ask you what was your general impression of, of the weekend slate before we get kick going some respectable outings yeah I mean really I mean I mean you have to take some of it with a grain of salt obviously San Antonio had people out but um the fact that they rallied yesterday, I mean, I fully expected after halftime, I understood why they went to the trapping, given that Trey Young was lighting everyone on fire um, and really manipulating their switches quite well. But I fully expected with only eight players available when you're doing that much trapping, even before he crosses half court and having to scramble to that degree that I'm like, they're going to run out of gas. Like, I get why you made that adjustment, but just from a fatigue standpoint and the amount of big minutes they're playing, losing an hour because of daylight savings time, crossing a time zone on the second night of a back-to-back and the fact that they made that a game, you know, two respectable games. Yeah, no, I was definitely, I was surprised. Uh, I was not expecting it, but I agree. Like, I, I think I tweeted at halftime, Trey Young has 33, career high is 56. It's happening. Like, uh, it just felt like, I mean, they could not get anything going against Trey Young. You were right. The trapping worked. It was exciting stuff. So to anyone who has not listened before, um, what is two questions to are? Why two do we questions. do it? Explain it. <laughs> Why, why do we do it? But um, two questions <laughs> to uh, um, is our monthly podcast summit on the third Tuesday of every month where um, we get together and just kind of brainstorm about overarching topics or, you know, things that are trending among the Pacers. Um, and we each come up with two questions in reference to Red Porter's classic call at the end of games, the last two minutes where he would say two minutes to ha. So that's where the name comes from. And generally I source my questions on Twitter because I would rather talk about stuff that people want to listen to us talk about. I mean, I can come up with stuff, but it may not be of interest to the listeners. So um, we each come up with two and we're, we don't know what the other person has come up with. So excited to dive in today. Yes, me as well. Um, 
who do you want to who do you want to get started? Why don't you go ahead and kick it off? All right, put me on the irons right away. Um, yeah, so it's going to sound a little bit ludicrous considering the man is scoring 19 points per game in March. He's been playing pretty good basketball, but I thought Tyrese had a really kind of odd weekend. Um, in my opinion, both the Spurs and Hawks game, he got it going late last night, but, um, where are you at with his aggression in the half court? Because it's starting to become kind of a recurring theme that, um, like, I, I don't know. I, I wrote in my notes in the first half yesterday, just like, where is Tyrese Halliburton? Like, and even, I mean, that was with eight players active and healthy yesterday. Um, so where are you at right now with his shot aggression and just how that's looked in general since the all-star break? Right. So to plug my own work, <laughs> um, I, over the weekend, I published a piece looking at one thing that each of the players under 25 can, you know, still work on over these last few games and why I still think it's worthwhile to watch. And that was effectively what I picked for him. Um, by nature, he is the type of player who's not going to take a lot of bad shots and is going to look to make the extra pass. But in some respects, you know, you want him to realize like, hey, I'm him. I'm Tyrese Halliburton and certain circumstances and be looking for his own shot. Um, I can kind of explain some of it against the Hawks to a degree, because especially after halftime, they have him coming out and he's face guarding Trey Young, sometimes the entire length of the floor. Um, that's incredibly tiring. And then having to rotate out of those traps, I understood why at times, I mean, even late in the clutch, there was minutes under five where like Dwayne Washington ran a couple possessions, buddy ran a couple possessions. I think that Tyrese did move decently off ball. He got scores out of some of those, but yeah, I mean, I think it's an area that you definitely want him to grow in because some of the possessions that I showed him there, a lot of times what you see is like when they were down in Orlando, for instance, like he comes off a wide screen that's supposed to be a catch for him to immediately get downhill. He sees Wendell Carter Jr. in a deep drop and he doesn't want to challenge that a lot of the time. Like he's not going to go the extra couple dribbles deeper to kind of really force that defense to commit so that he can make a pass. It was an automatic pass out to Buddy and then, you know, let Buddy do something with the ball and maybe he gets it back, but maybe not. So I think it's in those types of settings where you want him to find a little bit better of a balance, but I also something that's been evolving on my opinion on it to an extent is that, you know, not having a heliocentric point guard who has to have the ball the time isn't necessarily always so much a bad thing. I mean, the two players I'm about ready to reference really couldn't be any different from each other. But I think that's kind of what you've seen over the early portion of John Morant's career, where he's not somebody who every possession has to be dominating the ball and running offense and looking for shots. He'll give his teammates opportunities to run stuff as well. And I think that that helps. I mean, like, look at the reverse situation of last night, somewhat of its personnel, but when Trey Young's being face guarded and he can't get into offense, look at how much more trouble Atlanta had running basically anything with the other options that they have. So um, getting those types of reps for other people isn't necessarily so bad. And I think that you also have to look at every game as an individual um, occurrence. I mentioned this when I was on another podcast last week that, you know, you look at the end of that Cleveland game before their three-day mini vacation, and I'm sure, I mean, I had people ask me, like, why is all this being run through Brogdon? Well, the Pacers had gone smaller, and Brogdon was being guarded by Laurie Markkinen. And, again, mentioning what I said about Wendell Carter Jr., like, right now Ty Tyrese is in a place where if Evan Mobley switches out, he just doesn't want any part of that. 
like he doesn't want any part of trying to break that down and, and do anything with it. It's been two games of that. So he's very good at creating space for himself with self-created threes, but he's going to have to grow and hopefully build up his body, build up his strength so that he can get, you know, shoulder to chest advantage in some of those situations. So I definitely see what you're saying. And I do think that it's something that he needs to work on, but I don't necessarily see it as, as a complete negative either. Yeah, I, I, I should have framed it differently. I wouldn't say that it's a complete negative, right. but it definitely changes, um, I guess, my feelings and perception on it a little bit, you yeah. know, like on just who he is as a player. And like again, like you mentioned, like I think that's something, something that he can grow into for sure. He's already shown some real improvement in that throughout his three years in the league. I mean, two years in the league, geez, it's only second year. Um, but it is like definitely, like you mentioned, especially in that Cleveland game, I do think he had opportunities. And just seeing some of that, like I've pointed out multiple times, on like he is – such a ridiculously gifted passer. Like that goes without saying. Um, like every time, like there are at least like five or six passes a game where I'm like, wow, like there's just nobody else in the Pacers who's ever been able to hit a window like that. But then there are other times too where I'm like, okay, well, you are legitimately capable of like, I mean, some of the finishes he had last night and just in general, like he's got to be one of the best touch finishers I've ever watched. And um I mean, that go like, I mean, some of the things that he's able to hit, like running, you know, going off his offhand, like from 10 feet out, he's hitting floaters like it. it and again, like you're mentioning, it's part of uh, finding an interesting balance. And I think, again, it's not same players, but looking at somebody like Darius Garland, like he has really towed the line of being somebody who without necessarily getting to the rim, he's able to put a lot of pressure on it. Part of that is the rest of the personnel, but also like he's gotten better at doing some more craft finishes around the rim and doing some stride stuff and to toy with the defense and, um, you know, still using his floater to get into the paint and make the defense think. But I think that'll be an interesting thing to, to watch with Alec because I, I it just feel like they're like two or three shots a game. I mean, two or three passes he makes a game where it's right. like, oh, I just, I need you to shoot that. And yeah. um, definitely interesting to, to track moving forward. And I think another aspect of it too is like Darius Garland plays, I mean, not right now in these last couple of games because Jared Allen has been out, but he plays mm -hmm. with Jared Allen, who's yeah. a more experienced, you know, big to be operating with in some of those situations. I mean, I showed a clip this morning. I don't know if people would have seen it, but, you know, they're playing in San Antonio. San Antonio very uh, is, you know, equated with push coverage. They're going to ice side pick and rolls all the time. So in the first half, if you watch back, when he's running that with Isaiah Jackson, like Isaiah Jackson is basically just letting them ice the screen. He's not trying to make an adjustment. So then, you know, that guy's going to stay on Tyrese's hip. He's going to have to make a, a hook pass back that ended up getting deflected in the second half. They clearly, you know, had a discussion either between the two of them or in the locker room at halftime. Cause they come out Tyrese lifts. He waits for Isaiah Jackson to change the angle into a step up screen, which would be perpendicular with his feet facing the opposite, uh, basket so that it's flat so that Tyrese can still come off and then Tyrese does he rises up and pulls into a pull-up three like last night you could even see you know I mentioned it when I wrote the article about meant some of the stuff that Isaiah Stewart was doing for the Pistons they are having Jalen Smith set seal screens Gortat screens for Tyrese to get deeper into the paint I think that there's certain things that we don't always notice that the bigs could be doing that could be helping him or why maybe he's doing some of the stuff that he does but yeah absolutely what you're saying there is probably a couple two to three moments every night where there's shots that he could be taking that it just feels like I said by nature he's somebody that's you know going to be looking to make the extra pass and it's in certain situations where it's like okay I don't really need to see O'Shea make a move off the dribble there when you could take the wide open three that was already there. 
Um, so yeah, I think that that's definitely something that we're going to need to see more of moving forward, especially because I mean, even at, right when they traded him, you could look at the numbers in Sacramento and see that in the games when De'Aaron Fox was out, his usage didn't, Tyrese's usage didn't, uh, increase very much if at all it was marginal in situations where you would want to see like if he is going to develop you know into this franchise star player um that you'd want to see that tick up i think so um good question yeah definitely so all right let's go to your first question okay so this one actually comes from fellow pacers podcaster alex golden over it um keeping the pace i want to word it right so let me pull it up and find it um he effectively asked a good question for a player that we haven't gotten an opportunity to talk about a lot. Um, here we are. What changes were made to the offense to help Dwayne Washington Jr. break out of his slump? So just as some numbers for you before we launch into this question, over the last five games, he's scored in double figures in each of them um, and is averaging 23 and a half minutes, 16.6 points, on 57% shooting overall, shooting above 55% from three, um, slightly more turnovers than assists, but he's not really an assist guy, only 1.6 turnovers. And then prior to that, over eight games, he had averaged four points on 26% shooting, 26% from three. Yeah, I do uh, – not to discredit. I feel like part of it is just hot shooting, to be fair. Like, he's definitely just – I mean, he's been on a heater. Like, the, the game against um, San Antonio was awesome. Also, shout out the two dunks he had. I was not ready for either of them. Like, not like they were anything like world-beating or super amazing finishes, but I just – I couldn't remember him finishing uh, a dunk at all this year. So, that was fun to see. Um, as for the hot – as for the, the getting out of the slump in general um, – it's felt like he's just playing a lot more without the ball in his hands and doing more stuff coming off of screens. Um, at least that's what I have in my notes. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, and it's just a lot more minutes. I mean, mm -hmm. you had mentioned clear back whenever they played the Bucks that Dwayne played roughly like four minutes in that game in the first half, and then he didn't play again. Mm -hmm. So over the last five, he's averaging 23 and a half. He was averaging 14 over the prior eight. And yeah, I mean, I looked up, Whenever I saw this question come up and saw that he has played over these, which I didn't filter in last night because the data wasn't up whenever I was doing preparations for this, but he hasn't played any minutes without at least one of Tyrese Malcolm or Kiefer on the floor. Now there are times where he's still doing stuff with the ball somewhat, but there's always at least a, in theory, primary ball handler out there with him where prior to over those eight, there was, there was point Dwayne sightings where it felt like at times he was having to do too much. Like even though the team performed very well as a group against the Celtics, there was possessions in that game against Boston where, you know, he tried to go at Robert Williams and got, you know, completely rejected at the rim. He tried to attack Jason Tatum off the dribble. Um, when they were in Orlando, he tried to go at Okiki from the corner, um, tried to post RJ Hampton in some situations dribbling into one where it just felt like, you know, he needed to rain, some of those types of possessions in. And yeah, I think you're seeing him a lot. Like it's not anything necessarily major difference in schematics. It's just that, you know, exactly. He's making shots. A lot of times you're going to see him in the left corner. They'll be running Spain or they'll be running high pick and rolls. And when that tagger goes over to cover, Ajax is a lob, lob threat. He's there and he's actually knocking down that shot. But also he's not having to run the offense a lot in those situations where earlier in the season, especially during the COVID stuff, we were seeing him getting pressed maybe a little bit above his level in that degree. 
Um, I do think, though, that one thing that they have adjusted on over these last several games, now that guys have played together a little bit more, is that you'll see a lot of times where they make cuts that aren't, you know, necessarily intended for guys to catch the ball on the cut. They're cut assists. So um, one thing, like mentioning that dunk against the Spurs, for instance, like Buddy Heald will constantly, if he doesn't have the ball, be cutting from one slot to the opposite slot, essentially as a little ghost cut to try to distract the defender. He, he has enough gravity as a shooter that if he ran over there, that's essentially what opened up the space for Dwayne to drive into that dunk and be able to get to the rim. Um, a lot of times when he's out there with O'Shea, you're going to see O'Shea setting flares or pins that are going to make him a little bit more open or O'Shea is going to cut from the 45. And then if Dwayne, you know, goes screens up to the top of the key, there's no one there to stunt over and contest his shot. So um, just stuff making him a little bit more open, opening the floor up. And then, like you said, like I think when he sees one or two shots go in, we've seen it in New Orleans when he made seven threes. We saw it in the home game against the Clippers when he made four threes in roughly five minutes. When he sees a few go in, he tends to heat up, and he's been in a really nice groove over these last four or five. And really just credit to him and Terry Taylor. Like even, you know, Terry last night in Atlanta, I think, goes six to eight from the field. Like just to be on two-way contracts and to stay as ready as the two of them have and be able to produce games like that um, has been big. So, Alex, that's the way that I would answer that question. Yeah, I, I think we hit on that pretty well. Well, I guess I guess I'm up again. Uh, I'm trying to think where I want to go with this one. Um, I wanted to initially make this just something about Goga, but then I was like, it feels like we almost have to talk about the entire front court. Am I encroaching on any of you uh, on your remaining question if I just bring up the, the entire front court? I mean, we can just have a long dialogue about it if you want. Because yes, I, my my second question was going to be a lot of a lot of listeners want the Goga content. They want to know um, what the future holds for Goga. So if you want to do the whole front court, have at it. I just want to know that, like, I mean, we because we've talked about the defense so many times, and I just like. I promise, like, I know this is a, a team that is quote unquote in a soft rebuild right now, so I don't want to be too harsh, but like, there just is not a lot of synergy in the front court, like, at all right now. Um, I mean, like you mentioned, Terry Taylor. Um, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, I want to say Tony East tweeted out the starting lineup yesterday, and I was very ecstatic because, like, a, Terry Taylor, Isaiah Jackson, O'Shea all starting at the same time. It's just that's like, that's the perfect timeline, in my opinion, but. Um, like to me, I was like, Terry Taylor starting is not a tanking move. Like right now he is the most, uh, saying impactful is wrong way to put it, but I think just based on how he's played, he's been the most, um, capable of like actually helping the offense. Um, it, like that's not really good. I mean, that not, not that it sounds rude to say that it's not saying a lot, but like we've, I mean, I've written about it. We've talked about it. He's really good. Um, but he's so different from everyone else. And like you mentioned, like he, didn't even play in the Spurs game in a blowout win until like remaining seconds. Um, or actually, I don't, I don't, did he touch the court? In the Spurs he didn't game? play. Yeah, he, he didn't, didn't play. play. Um, I mean, he played yesterday, which was awesome. But like, again, like this front court is just so wonky. Like we've seen a lot of really good things. I mean, let's just talk about Goga. Like did, did Goga's, has Goga's March so far changed up anything in your eyes? Because he has played pretty well. Um, I do think he's had some better moments of, of playing defense, like just as a rim protector, he's looked a little bit better in some spurts, but I still think overall, like not awesome, but offensively too, like he was, I mean, shooting 65% from the field granted four games, but um, 
he's looked pretty confident offensively. He hasn't put the ball down as much, but also he hasn't really had a ton of opportunities to do it, I would say. But, I mean, where are you at with that? Because that's that's a good launching point. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lots of questions, like I said, about Goga. Um, how much longer do we wait on Goga? Uh, is Goga still going to be on the team next year? Mm-hmm. Um, or does he have a future anywhere in the NBA next year? Those types of questions. So, um, I think over the last three, you know, three straight games and double figures clearly didn't play in Atlanta because of the foot. And, and because of the way the foot is lingering, it's starting to reshape some of my opinions on maybe some of the stuff that we were seeing. Like, you know, the possession I mentioned a couple podcasts ago when they were in Orlando and Tyrese threw that lob that he couldn't get. And it wasn't even a high lob. And I'm just like, you know, what is going on there? You weren't held. Why couldn't you get it? Well, maybe, you know, the foot is limiting some of those types of possessions and maybe I need to you know, pull back some of those types of criticisms. But at the same time, um, I think you can see little areas of improvement, like when they were in San Antonio. Like, again, these are two different players. But um, if you're looking at, like, what steps does Goga need to take moving forward for his own development or just to distinguish himself from the other options that they have, I think physicality is a big one because that's something that he has that I don't think you would readily necessarily say about Jalen and Isaiah Jackson right now, if he can tap into it. And that's the problem that like he's in Orlando and Wendell Carter Jr. just completely dislodges him on a post-up and backs him up under the rim and then scores. So they're in San Antonio. And again, it's, it's Jacques Lawndale on the right block, but Goga reads it and sat on his left hip the entire time and prevented him from being able to turn over his shoulder to get to his right. And then he had to pass out of that post up. Like he didn't get back down. He held up and made the correct read on what the opponent was doing. So that's something. um, I think that my main thing is what I wrote in the article over the weekend that the defense, I agree with you. Like he, he's had some nice contests right around the basket. But people want to know, like, okay, well, Jalen Smith, he may not be able to be re-signed next year. Why is he getting minutes in closing time? Why are they closing with him at, at solo five, like against the Cavs? Well, they come out at, like, the 10-minute mark of the fourth quarter against Cleveland. And this has happened I don't know how many times this year where uh, Darius Garland has the ball. Goga starts dropping like they're going to – like Brogdon's going to go over. And Brogdon had already switched on to Evan Mobley. And there's just no communication. Brogdon has his hands up looking at him like, what are you doing? And then it's a two on the roller advantage. You could see this in Phoenix. You can, like, I have like four or five clips of it. And that's just the ones that I knew right off the top of my head. This happens almost every game where there isn't a communication because most of the time they're not going to switch out completely with Goga because of what his limitations with mobility are. So they play drop covers with him. The rest of the team is used to switching. Sometimes he does switch and he just needs to be a lot more vocal and calling out what coverage he's going to use, or he needs to assimilate to the switch screen and switch scheme and start doing it. Because um, even a few possessions in San Antonio, there's almost two or three defensive possessions from Goga every game where I'm like, what exactly is he doing there? Like he came up, Jalen was on ball defending. There were going to be a screen and he comes up and just stands to the right side of the ball handler when the screen is coming to Jalen's left side. So it's basically just going to leave a wide open space for the person to drive. And Jalen's like, are you switching? What are you doing? So, um, those types of things need to be cleaned up. Cause you could see then like Ricky immediately took a timeout in that Cavs game when that possession happened. 
and Goga did not play again. They went to Jalen. Now, we all know what happened. Like, they started switching everything, and Darius Garland pretty much dissected it and, you know, to the point where they had to go to the hard traps. But the difference being there is I would rather see Goga get beat and they're executing at least the same coverage instead of trying to execute two different schemes at once. Like, Jalen got beat, but at least they were all on the same page. At least they all knew we are switching. Like, I think they should have come out of it quicker and made an adjustment, but there's a big difference between that and being Malcolm Brogdon and Goga and not even doing the same thing at the same time. And you can see that happening fairly often. So I would like to see him start communicating a lot more. I think the physicality could happen or to help him on both ends of the floor. I mean, he had that like air hook shot against the Spurs where he didn't even like touch rim when there he had a I'll size advantage. Yeah, <laughs> didn't happen uh, if we don't admit it. Um, yeah, no, that was painful. Um, but, um, just on the physicality front, he also had, uh, a possession in San Antonio where he sealed off Dean wave really nicely around the basket so that buddy could get in and get an assist back to him. Whereas again, in Orlando, you saw that he could not seal off Mo Bamba and he and O'Shea almost collided with each other at the basket. So I do think that he's made some subtle improvements and showed some things, but I'm still questioning whether he's really going like, of course the Pacers would want him to play well down the stretch because that just provides them with more options, whether he's going to be their backup center option next year, or they're going to try to look for trades. But like in my head, I'm still struggling to see how he's going to fit in if they want to move to a switching scheme. Like I just, I don't think that it's a perfect fit, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I feel similarly. And just in, in terms of the entire switching scheme, um, I guess, well, I'll just ask you right now. It's hard to judge, obviously, because this is, I mean, I feel like we're pretty much on the same page. This roster is, if it doesn't look drastically different next year, um, I have questions. But, um, I mean, how do you feel about them implementing, a, like, a switch, a switch scheme so far? I mean, I have questions to a degree about why it's happening. Yeah. Um, I want to see where their heads are at when the season's over and what they're thinking, because in part, I mean, I've said this before, and this is how I ended it. They don't have an identity on defense. They haven't had one all season. It's just felt like, you know, they don't look very connected. They don't communicate that well. And it becomes, and this goes back clear to the first games of the year, that it's just been a matter of, you know, we have so many holes to patch on the perimeter a lot of the time that they just try to do it with whatever coverage fits, whichever big they're playing with. And every big that they're playing with kind of needs to play with a different type of coverage. And that isn't completely untrue of a lot of NBA teams where you might have two centers who are different and you might do, you know, slightly different coverages, but it's just never felt like they've been settled. Like Sabonis needed to be hedging and be up above the level. And there were games where they might do okay with that or do really well. Like the game that they won against the Miami heat when um, Kyle Lowry was out, they hedged schemed that, you know, almost entire game. And I thought they did a really good job with it. Other games, it looked like, you know, the low man didn't exist and they couldn't rotate out of it. And once the trade deadline occurred, they weren't really, they haven't really been doing so much of that anymore. That's basically disappeared. And now it's all been switching. And part of me thinks, you know, they had a lot of guys come together who clearly hadn't, I mean, so much about the roster change that that was kind of the easiest way to put a defense together was just say, you know, hey, we're just going to switch everything. Plus they have young bigs who aren't really, 
you know, accustomed to, I mean, especially Isaiah Jackson having so few minutes to be doing drop coverage all the time. Now they have been having him do more of that lately. Like they started out last night against Atlanta, having him do some of that with Clint Capella early. But I think that they just like the mobility of, of Jalen and Ajax and they're trying to do it. But it's just like, you know, early on, part of the problem with Trey Young wasn't even so much that Trey Young was beating like his primary assignment. It was that um, how they were defending the switches. I mean, they were coming up and they weren't even at the level again. Like you can't you can't be having the guy that's trading off the tray be 10 feet off and not ha- and not be up at the point of the screen when you're going to switch it. You can't have a big trying to close that degree of space when you're going to hand him from one defender to the next. So that was kind of more the problem even so than him necessarily just, you know, toasting Buddy or Tyrese or whoever it was before they went to the trapping. Um, it depends. I mean, you're asking about next year. It really depends because – um, miles can switch in certain situations, sometimes against wings. Um, I think he's had some nice possessions in games in the past when he's had to do that, like against Luca, for instance, but mm-hmm. if he was having to do as much switching as they're doing right now, I would have a lot of questions, not only because I would question if he would be able to stay in front. Like we saw that, you know, for instance, last year, they had him switch out against Kemba Walker. It did not end well, but at the same time, the double-edged sword of switching is if Miles Turner is switching out to the ball, he's not at the basket anymore. And that's really the number one thing that he offers you is, is what he does to protect the rim and to get people to pass out of shots at the rim, and he wouldn't be there. So um, I, w- I would question it if they were doing switch everything with Miles 100% of the time. It would kind of be like, you know, why are you not letting him do um, the thing that he adds the most utility doing? But Um, I'll certainly reserve judgment till next year when they can implement exactly what they want to do from the beginning of the season. Because I mean, you and I talked about that. It's funny because I mean, how many podcasts did we have last summer where we talked about how much Nate Bjorken's defense did not fit Sabonis and how they couldn't go into another season, just expecting one or the other of them to morph to something. And that ideally you would just, you know, make a decision and pick what you want to be and do it. And as it turned out, they started the year trying to balance both things. Then eventually both of them were hedging because of the point of the tag defense was so leaky. And uh, like I said, I, I barely even know how to talk about it anymore. I give them credit for what they did with the, with the trapping against Trey Young. But a lot of times they have so many mistakes and miscommunication errors on that end of the floor that it's like, how do I even sum this up in a concise article to describe what the problem is? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think you make a really great point because that's where I've leaned to uh, when I try and think about what the defense is going to theoretically look like next year. Like I've thought, you know, okay, well maybe the back half of this year is trying to implement stuff for next year. And then I'm like, well, the more I watch, it feels like this is just patchwork to get through to next year. Um, You know, and and like, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I don't ever think it's anything binary, just like one thing, but um, I'm definitely there with you. Um, well, let's let's talk about Ajax for a second, too. Um, he's looked a little bit better in drop recently, I feel like. Um, he had some good possessions against the Spurs. Again, it it hasn't been perfect. He still has a lot to, to figure out, you know, using his hands more, stuff like that. But again, like we've talked about, that takes a while to develop. But um, just looking at him overall, like he's had a really, really positive stretch post-All-Star break. Just in March, six games in March, 12 points per game, eight boards. That's not everything, but... Um, you know, he's been a little bit better at not biting on every pump fake. Uh, he still bites on a lot of them, but not everyone, um, which has been really nice to see. 
Um, how have you felt about his growth this month? I think that something that always stands out to me the most, I mean, he had some dunks and stuff that he didn't finish the last two games. Oh, my God. I, dunk, can, we, can we talk? The dunk against the Spurs, though, that that the dunk, not just a dunk, the dunk that he had on – On Zach Collins? Oh, my the God, the one that he yes. ran in transition and got. That was amazing. If this That's, was a start-sub-sit episode, I might have to sit Zach Collins. Just, <laughs> you know, I might have to. That was a very rough game for him. Oh God, that dunk was that, that sent me though, watching that but, on replay. But what I was going to say is how often he finishes with his left mm-hmm. um, and how nice his touch can be around the rim with his left is very pleasant and nice to see that he has that degree of dexterity already with mm-hmm. both of his hands, given that, you know, he isn't a left-handed shooter. Um, yeah. I think that there's some moments still where I want his focus to be a little bit better, but I mean, it, it's, Definitely. it's almost, crazy when you say that because like you'll look down at his numbers and you can feel like oh he he had quite a few mistakes there and then it's like wow he's still producing to this degree so imagine if he you know as he continues to grow and learn about the game because like I know Quinn brought it up on the broadcast and I agree like he had a possession last night where I don't even remember if it was Bogdanovich or who was guarding him he had a smaller player and he took he dribbled into a fadeaway jump shot um which you know nice to see that he can take a step back too but I don't think you really need to take a step back too when you have a smaller guy defending you, like either move toward the basket with your face up game or take him to the block and do something there. Um, it's those types of decisions where I think that, you know, with time, he's still going to have to improve and get better, but I don't know if you noticed it, but it, it was really funny. I didn't share it. Cause I was like, well, people might not like that. I shared it, but there was a possession in San Antonio where he missed the one dunk and he is so trained to run to the rim, which opens up a lot of stuff in transition um, because people will sink into him because he sprints so hard, but he started sprinting the other way back on defense. And um, I don't remember if it was Primo or who had the ball for the Spurs, but he had his hands ready. Like he was going to catch a pass when he was running back on defense because he's so used to doing that. It was, it was, it was quite entertaining for me that. that that's how ready he is all the time. But um I think it was in the second half. You'll have to go back and watch for it, or I'll have to send it to you later because it was pretty funny. But um, because it wasn't like he thought he was going to be intercepting a pass, like he was literally looking at the Spurs guard, like he was like ready to catch the ball in transition. But um, yeah, I mean, just little things like that. And and Tom pointed it out, but since I wrote the seal article, the seal screen article, he has been screening his own man some and opening up stuff from people for in other ways. He did that against Cleveland. He did that a couple times against the Spurs. Um, Seems like that's been a little bit of a point of emphasis emphasis, because like I said, they don't necessarily Jalen has done a few things in the post lately, but they don't necessarily have guys where you're going to throw it down low and, you know, go get a basket when they're seeing some of these switches. So it becomes more a case of like, what are the bigs going to do? that can help the guards still be able to create advantages or maybe get to the rim. And and he had a nice few moments there too. But um, what have you been noticing that you've liked? Today's episode is brought to you by cars.com with over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day. Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've noticed all that as well. The uh, except for the running back with his hands on the screen, that's hilarious. Um, the uh, the interior screens, like the Horford screens, like you mentioned, that's been a, that's been really fun to notice. Um, I think that's really helped uh, some of the guards in finishing. Like that's something I think we could point out for Dwayne because he's had some really nice finishes, but like a lot of it's been like coming on like snaking to the rim a little bit and having those interior screens get set. And it's not, you know, that's not the sole reason, but there, it's been a nice addition for a, a group of guys who isn't exactly fantastic at beating their own man without a screen. So it's been nice to see. Um, I have really liked, like you mentioned with the seal screens, but I've, I've liked the way that he's sealed running in transition. Like I think he's felt, a, I'd have to check numbers on it, but I felt like he seems a little bit more comfortable, like sealing a, a, a post mismatch or just getting somebody um, down on the block early because he runs so freaking fast down court. Um, and he takes like one or two dribbles or just like hits one or two moves and he's good getting the ball up. And like, he's, he's definitely still had some moments of quirkiness and like, you can tell that he's not super, super comfortable with it yet, but I feel like he's looked a lot better than it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, he did have a possession. I think it was in San Antonio where he scored over a couple people right around the basket, um, lifted up. So um, progress there. I still, I still am curious to see, cause I mean, they've played him with Jalen a little bit more, but in those minutes, he's still predominantly guarding the five. I still want to see minutes where he gets assigned to a lower usage wing. That was the topic that I wrote about for him in the piece that I wrote over the weekend, because I just want to see what that does for his ground coverage. And, and to his credit, he didn't really get into foul trouble these two games necessarily, but I do think that it would minimize some of his foul trouble and just what he could do as a weak shot, shot blocker um, with a simplified role, kind of roaming around the baseline, like what Robert Williams does for Boston. Like, I'm not saying you do that hundred percent of the time, but I would like to get a peek at what it looks like. And in the minutes when he's out there, like I said, with Jalen, it's typically Jalen is out defending whoever the four is. And in some of this is semantics because of how much they do switch, but um, I'd like to see a little bit of interchangeability there just to, just to have more data points on what all he can do headed into next year. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's part of why I wish that we would see Miles this year. Just and it did obviously not reporting anything, but it just doesn't seem like we're going to see Miles this year based on current trajectory. I mean, the Pacers have 13 games left. Um yeah. does not seem super likely, but I want to see him play with Miles because that would get him to play on a lower usage guy, or not even that, but more like we would get to see him play off ball a little bit more and get to do more of just being a four playing against, um, you know, playing more as a roamer and getting to do some things just with his recovery speed and length. So that's something that would be really enticing. But, yeah, I'm just not sure it's going to happen. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it's a little bit curious because they did, I mean, Miles himself had shared video of him being, you know, back at practice and being able to do some sprinting and then some non-contact drills. And like you said, it's not a lot of time with only 13 games left for him to ramp back up. But, um at the same time, I agree. Like, I think having as much, I mean, even just seeing Brogdon play a little bit with Halliburton, um, and unfortunately Brogdon's back or is in concussion protocols, but like just having a little bit more information of what these guys look like, it's not going to be everything, but seeing them out on the court to know, like, you know, what could the potential ceiling of this be? Um, does it look functional? I think would have been valuable if, if Miles was healthy, but I mean, I obviously don't want him to go out there and push it. And if they didn't think he was ready and there was going to be a risk of like going through another year of, of weeks, not months, I certainly want to avoid that and want him to avoid it. But um, 
yeah, I would have valued seeing Miles be able to get back out and play. I'll put it that way. Yeah, definitely. So I think, I mean, that, oh, do you want to talk about Jalen? Because that's the only front court member we haven't really talked about in depth. Yeah, we can talk about Jalen. Um, how have you felt about him even with his shot not falling? Because I think this has been really important to notice, you know, what's it going to look like if he's not shooting 41% on volume? Um, shot 27% so far in March. He finally hit one yesterday. I do think like he's been good at not passing up looks, um, which I've appreciated because like we've talked about, you know, this entire time we've done the podcast, do not pass up open threes, please. Um, but how have you felt about him as his, as his shot's been a little bit off? Yeah, I mean, it's more so been these last handful of games where he had like a couple, you know, didn't make one or one of four games. I mean, I don't think you and I ever thought that he was going to shoot the ball to the level that he started out when he was practically, you know, up over 50 and it felt like everything was falling. But I do like the way I mean, this was another topic that I brought up over the weekend that people can go read that whether he was making the shots or not, when he was off ball, people weren't really guarding him like they didn't necessarily believe in the shot, like even against the Wizards especially with the way Malcolm Brogdon was being so aggressive driving the ball. Like his defender was going to Brogdon and he was just lonely at the top of the key, just standing there. I feel like they've done some pretty smart things with him to keep him moving um, when he isn't getting the ball. So it's not just those types of situations where he's standing there at the slot and they have, you know, his guy goes in doubles and I've mentioned it before, but they've had him a couple times just in a few spots. Use like a Danny Green cut where he cuts along the baseline, and that really puts a lot of pressure on that low tag defender. Because essentially, what we're talking about is, you know, if if Malcolm and Goga are running a, a wing ball screen, Jalen cuts to the same side of the floor that they're on into that corner, so that his defender, who would be the low tagger that would be there to protect against Goga on the roll, has to then make a decision: Am I going to follow Jalen out there? Or am I going to stay with Goga? So that still, like, you're still putting some degree of tension on the defense just with his movement in that way. Instead of, you know, if he does, you know, shoot in the lower 30s, if that's where he kind of averages out at, that he's not just standing behind the arc and not having anybody guard him. But I mean, he did make the big three late or, or a big three late against the Cavs when he popped out. I mean, I've liked seeing some of the different ways that he is getting threes. Um, it's not just like he has to just stand there with his feet glued to the three-point line. He can move into the corner. Um, they have used him in some pick-and-pop situations. So um, that allows them to have a little bit more roll-pop versatility as well. Like when you're setting a double drag, if he can pop reasonably, then it makes it a little less predictable which screener is going to be the popper and which one's going to be the roller, with the exception of Ajax. I mean, they pretty much exclusively – roll and lob with him but like in minutes when he'd be out there maybe with terry taylor maybe with goga becomes a little less predictable which one of them's going to do which thing so i'm still not i like seeing some of the times when he does see a closeout on the baseline he's had like a nice little floater a few times but i think that he still needs to grow when he attacks closeouts especially if a guard's guarding him what he's going to do and then his overall face-up game i think he's had a few nice post-ups but if he has a small on him and he faces up, I think that his footwork could get a little bit better and he could become more decisive. Yeah. See that that's exactly where I'm at too. I think he's shown some really nice stuff. Like he had that, that one finish he had against the Cavs, kind of like took me out of my seat again too. Um, I'm trying to remember who was on because somebody closed out on him and he, uh, he drove and had like a, a underhand layup. And I was like, what the hell? Like, okay. Isaiah, I mean, not Isaiah, uh, Jalen is doing this. I was like, what are, okay, all right, cool. 
Um, but like you're mentioning, I think when he has like a wing or just a smaller forward on him who's quicker than he is, I think you can see some problems, especially like like you mentioned with the decision making a little bit. Like he can you can tell it the gears are turning for him a little bit. And part of that is being like a, a rather raw younger player. But if he's really going to get the most out of his value as a face-up player, I agree. It's going to be by being able to really hone in on some of that. And um, yes, I, I can't I can't disagree with that at all. But it's been very nice to see some of his flashes. And I continue to absolutely love the rebounding. Like just seeing somebody like, I mean, Sabonis was obviously an insane rebounder. But like, I don't know. I think seeing seeing somebody else who is not Sabonis rebound the hell out of the ball has been very fun too. Yeah, so I mean, I guess my one question with Jalen is, what has your thoughts been? Because most of the time when these games are close in closing time, he's the player out there at solo five. It's or at the very least at the five or out there. I'm very – I don't want to get, like, too crazy about next year on this, but I don't know – like, I, I actually was talking to this about uh, – talking about this with a scout um, earlier, uh, I think yesterday – and they were like, you know, do you, what do you think about his future in, in Indiana? I'm like, I don't, I don't know how he's back here next year. Like, I just, like, I mean, we talked about Zach Collins earlier. Obviously, this is different. Zach Collins has played, like, he'd played 100 games in his NBA career before he signed that deal with the Spurs this, this offseason. But Zach Collins hadn't played basketball in two years, was a high lottery pick who had shown some stuff in a similar way to Jalen, um, obviously, in more, more, again, more playing time, more games. He got a three-year guaranteed deal with the Spurs, and I think some people scoffed at it, which I think you can you, – I don't really fault scoffing at that one. But, like, point being, I mean, we've seen guys routinely who, as rookies – or not as rookies, but, like, as young players who are on rookie deals, there are teams that, if they're rebuilding or they're looking for, you know, a potential to um, – like, I mean, we've seen the Pacers do it, like, potential to, um, you know, find an extra way to get talent and maybe – you know, give people a new opportunity in, in a different system. Like I am pretty comfortable saying that somebody's going to pay Jalen more than he can get from the Pacers. Cause I think the most you can get is $5 million, which like, I think he's priced himself out of that with how he's played here. Like, I, I think you and I have both been on the same train of like, you know, you, you have to be careful looking at his stats because not to, not to be unfair to him, but like, this is just, if he's on a different team that has different goals, I do think it looks very different. Um, but I mean, you can see the the idea behind it, and I, I do think a team will buy into that and be interested in him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat of a push and pull because you know Rick Carlisle's hired to win games, and I think right now wow. he just feels the most comfortable um, to 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 play Jalen in those situations, and I think you can see why. Like, I think. Um, as tantalizing as much upside as Ijax has, sometimes Ijax has just flat out been in foul trouble in these games, and that has led him to be on the bench. And if it's a choice between Jalen and Goga, I just think they feel more comfortable um, having a big – I mean, Goga has shot the three a little bit better here of late, but having somebody who, for the most part, was shooting the three better than the other options that they have at that position and because of what um, more options you have defensively, even though we know what happened um, during the Darius Garland minutes. But I think some of it, too – like just the situation that I explained with Goga earlier, like I'm not saying it's a punishment, but to a certain extent, like if Goga keeps making the same mistake over and over again and you take the time out and then you basically bench him and you end up playing Jalen, there has to be some degree of accountability. Like, I don't think it can just be a blank check that because, you know, the season is what it is and it's lost and, you know, 
you're going to the playoff or you're not going to the playoffs and, and you're going to be a lottery team that you should just play all these guys all the way. I'm not saying that they shouldn't get any opportunity to play through mistakes, but it was the type of mistake that Goga had at the beginning of that Cavs game again over the back 10 minutes. Like, I think there has to be some degree of like, okay, you have to earn these minutes too. Like we have to do something so that you know that you need to stop making that same mistake. So Jalen offered a means of doing that. Now, do I think it's questionable somewhat to the same degree of things that people are bringing up with Tyrese, not having the ball in some late game situations, potentially playing somebody who's not going to be on your roster next year in late game situations. I think that's definitely a conversation, but I do think that there is something to earning playing time too. Yeah, no, 100%. And I, I mean, I'm right there with you. I think Jalen's just flat out been better than Pilgrim hasn't been making the same mistakes. And that that's important. Um, I just, I, sorry, I went on like a really long soliloquy about him, you know, not being a pacer next year, but I think that's what makes it just so funky about the front court. Cause I, it's such an odd dichotomy. Cause like you mentioned, I think that he's been deserving of the minutes, but it's also like, I just don't like, <laughs> it's hard to envision him being back here next year. Yeah. Um, but I digress. I mean, my second question was going to be about Goga. So in a way, we've kind of covered everything for this monthly summit, unless the only other thing that people really brought up and wanted to know. So I guess we can touch on it lightly because we have kind of mentioned it in passing. But what have you thought of the Brogdon-Halliburton combo? Um, I don't think it's bad. Um, I think it's – I don't want to like totally hedge. It's hard to tell at times with some of the other, but just again, like with the front court, like what does it look like if Miles is out there? What if it, I'm not even going to do the TJ Warren hypothetical, um, but like, okay, if Miles is out there, how is it different? I do think you can see some stuff like, um, like they've been doing a lot of weave, it feels like, um, just to get into actions, you know, without necessarily running ball screens. Um, I've really enjoyed seeing the three guard lineup. I do think, uh, like to me, Malcolm has looked a lot better playing off of Tyrese, but also like you mentioned, like there's been a lot of stuff like in that Cavs game. I know Malcolm's final stat line wasn't great, but I thought he did the right things like Lowry Mark. He was feasting on Lowry marketing. Like I thought that was, you know, take those opportunities. You're doing the right thing. Um, but I do like, I don't know. Obviously it feels like Malcolm's best balance is playing more off the ball, um, playing off of Tyrese. But again, it's not like, it's not perfect, but I do think you can see the idea of like having, having like that. Obviously, people want to have a primary point guard or whatever who's, you know, being heliocentric or something like that. But I also think it's good to have multiple guys who can create and who can make passes. Obviously, we know Tyrese is probably the best passer. I mean, not probably, he's definitely the best and most creative passer on the team. But like what we've seen, I mean, Malcolm's played some of his most effective basketball, just being able to collapse off the second side, playing off of Tyrese. And, um, you know, I've, so I've really enjoyed watching that. I think that they're not perfect together, um, but it's also like a less than 15 game sample size of them playing together. Less than, I think it's less than 10 even. So I'm not, I, I don't, if, if they decide to uh, not fully go into a rebuild, which it seems like that's where they're headed, I wouldn't necessarily hate them keeping Malcolm and seeing what they look like together next year. Yeah. I mean, I think that where people are coming from has mostly been stemming from the fact that when they start games, most of the offense is being run through Tyrese. Then they've been heavily staggered 
um, with Brogdon running bench offense and Tyrese running offense with hybrid units. And then when they get into late game situations, a lot of times it has tilted more towards Malcolm. I think in some games that's made more sense than others. Like what I referenced before, I think that for the most part, it made sense against Cleveland because Tyrese, you got to look at how opponents are changing what they're doing defensively. So like just in the two games against Cleveland, Cleveland wasn't heavily switching with Evan Mobley. And in the first game with Mobley and Allen until the fourth quarter. So what Tyrese was able to do changed as the game went on. So once they started switching him out, I thought it did make sense to be, you know, initiating a little bit more with, more with Malcolm. Cause like I said, they went small. Um, Brogdon was essentially the fourth biggest player on the floor for the Pacers with Jalen at the five marketing was guarding Brogdon. It makes sense to try to take advantage of that matchup. Even if it does mean, you know, that Tyrese is playing, somewhat off ball, but I mean, in the, in their minutes together, they have been a net negative. Um, I think that you have to be really careful with um, numbers uh, that are this small of a sample size. It's only 146 minutes. And you have to consider there that when the two of them are on the court together, um, you know, the Pacers are a rebuilding team and they're going to be out there against starters when they're playing by themselves. They're going to be out there more against bench units, which could make those numbers look a little bit rosier when they're just out there one at a time. But um I also think it's just created a new set of problems because, I mean, other people wanted to know, like, what's going on with the clutch offense because, obviously, the Pacers continued. That's been an ongoing scenario. They've changed the roster. They're still having problems scoring late in games and what they're doing. Um, they run a lot of pick and roll during clutch time. 538 had an article about that. And somebody asked me about it. I'm like, well, yeah, early in the season, that was predominantly what they would do. And then opponents would just blitz Brogdon or blitz Karis Levert because the two of them were having trouble getting off the ball in those situations early in the season. Then if they did and they got it to Sabonis, then they would just collapse on Sabonis. And it was like, Hey, make a cast of shooters who can't shoot threes, hit a three or the role man was just being treated like an abstract concept. If we're just being completely honest. And now it feels like, you know, Sabonis is in Sacramento. The dynamic of how teams are going to defend late in game situations has changed because you're not going to, there's a lot more incentive to switch because you're not giving up some massive advantage in the middle of the court. Um, the Pacers don't really have a guy that you're just going to automatically know, hey, and not that the Pacers were doing this early in the season, they weren't, but like opponents know, hey, they don't have Sabonis. They're not going to throw it inside if we switch out and we know that we have Evan Mobley or we have, you know, to Isaiah Stewart's credit, who switched very well in that particular game for Detroit. We have this person. We're going to limit them to, you know, maybe Tyrese passing out of that or maybe Malcolm Brogdon struggling to finish at the rim. And it becomes, you know, like what we mentioned, it becomes like the bubble offense to an extent. So people want to know, like, you know, what can you do? Because Brogdon's probably not at the level where he should be, you know, a high usage isolation option late in games. So where do you go? And to me, it just becomes – you know, it can't just be one screen and done. It can't yeah. just be Isaiah Jackson goes up there, sets a screen for Malcolm Brogdon, and then it's it's hitchy and, and you don't get to another action. It has to be, okay, we ran that screen, we got the switch, and now we're, you know, we're firing it to the other side of the floor into something else. Or, you know, we don't like that switch, we're going to use another screen. And they did do that against Cleveland a few times where it was like, okay, we got an initial switch, now we're into an off-ball action, Buddy comes and sets another screen, and now at least it's Dean Wade on the ball instead of Evan Mobley on the ball. 
Um, I think you got to get to those types of situations. I think that there's stuff that you can do more with the bigs. And if there is going to be switches and they're going to be, you know, launching up potentially self-created threes, which I don't think is always a bad thing. Tyrese has been good at those. Then the bigs need to be really active because they're going to have a mismatch on the glass. So then you go off, maybe you punish the switch in that way where you're going off of an offensive rebound. Um, or maybe you're just trying to push the pace more in those late game situations and you're giving the ball to Tyrese and you're not even setting a screen. You're just expecting him to get downhill and the open court, get past his guy and then get into driving kick from there. Um, stuff like that. But I do agree with you that it's been a very small sample size. I think that the fit between them is ultimately there. I think one thing that's really surprised me though, is how much Brogdon's workload really hasn't decreased. If anything, it's been it's been higher and not just because of like on ball work, but I mean, his drive numbers have been insane and that's a credit to him. He's been very aggressive. Looks like he's moved past, you know, at least I mean, I'm not going to say that he's completely pain free, but like, you know, prior to in those games, you could see spots where it looked like he didn't have the same lift or that he was going to pass out of some of those drives or he wasn't even driving through the middle portion of the season. And now, you know, for a three game stretch, he was at like over 20. 20 drives per game, getting to the free throw line more than anybody in the league out of drives. So that's kind of more on par with what was happening when he first signed with the Pacers for like that first month when he and Sabonis really were just, you know, kind of guaranteed points out of the pick and roll and how much he was driving that that's still a very heavy workload. Even if it is second side, it's still a lot of him getting into the paint and um, be doing stuff there, especially with what they're asking of him on the defensive end. So I think that aspect of it has been a little bit surprising, but I think we're probably on the same page and that my opinion would be I'm fine with seeing he and Duarte and Halliburton and Brogdon growing, playing together. The only thing, it wouldn't be a basketball question for me. It would be a timeline question. You know, Malcolm Brogdon is significantly older than Tyrese and Chris Duarte. So also what his injury history has been, is the team okay with both of those things? That that's what would bring me pause. It wouldn't so much be the fit between the two of them, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think to me, it's so much more about, okay, well, where is this team going? And I think it, I mean, we've talked about, I think it's a mistake to, to just be like, oh, well, we're going back to, we want to go back to the playoffs next year. And I think I've had, I've gotten pushback on that because people are like, oh, well, you don't, you can't just tell guys not to win. And I'm like, that's, it's not about that. That's not what you're telling people. Exactly. It's not at all about like saying people can't win. Like, I think you want to win with the group you have, but it's what your purpose is. Like, I just think if, if this team is going into next year thinking, oh, well, we want to make the playoffs, um, you know, we think our, our, our window is right now, then that's how did this bonus trade actually impact things? Because to me, that, that would be faulty. Like, I think you can definitely make the case that Tyrese could be a better player than Domas in a couple of years. And I don't think you'd necessarily be um, wrong, but in terms of like actually being a better team or having a better trajectory, I would definitely disagree on that. So um, a lot to, a lot to. <laughs> well, let, let, no, let's just touch on that a little bit. Yeah. I actually want to do emphasize what you're saying there, because, you know, when, when, Kevin Pritchard talked after they traded for Tyrese, which I thought was good. Like I enjoyed the presser. I liked that he came out and explained why they did what they did and what they liked about Tyrese. But he did mention in there briefly that, you know, he had heard like, you know, criticism about them wanting to be a tough out and basically said like, we don't want to be a tough out. We want to be, you know, we want to compete. We want to contend. 
if that's what you want to do, like to me, it, it kind of feels like you'd be putting yourselves back in the position. And, and again, both of us would have to wait and see like what else happens in the Eastern conference. What do other teams do? But if you want to be more than a tough out, it feels like the path forward, at least in my head is try to get as many bites at the apple in the Tyrese Ijax window as you can and try to add talent that's going to match up with where they are. And that's not me being critical of what veterans they have or me not thinking like, I think that this team can be a better team next year than what this current year has been. Like I, I, I see that vision, but if you want to get beyond that, where it feels like the Pacers have been stuck in this spot for how long now, since they've last won a playoff series, um, it feels like you're going to need to pivot to that to me, but this is with me not having seen all these people play together and me not knowing what the off season brings, which I'm sure the Pacers are going to want to see that for themselves as well. And also know, you know, where other teams finish in the playoffs may alter what their plans are for the off seasons too. But um, I think you and I are probably thinking similarly there. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I think we're definitely coming from the same, uh, same area there. Um well, Caitlin, I think that is as good a spot as any to leave off on. you have anything uh, exciting that you want to mention or plug before we get out of here? Well, just to bring back Beverage Corner. <laughs> <laughs> I And because, you know, it wouldn't be a podcast unless we had our bingo card filled out with the two things I'm about ready to bring up. I have recently discovered that Outshine Popsicles and the Giannis 50-50 actually pair really nicely together <laughs> if, if you put an outshine popsicle in the Giannis 50 50 it effectively becomes like strawberry ice cubes for the drink and then it's like a strawberry limeade that's incredible it, um, it really is and it's it's cheap and easy you just pour two things in a cup take out your popsicle and, and it, it really would hit the spot if it was like a warmer day and you could take it outside because then the popsicle would melt quicker in the cup I feel like I need to try this now. I, I mean, I feel like I'm, that, I'm, but... I'm just dumping a lot of important knowledge to you, Mark. And I don't know how many more times I'm going to have to bring up these popsicles until you will finally find a mode to try them. Maybe this is it. I, I do think this, uh, this spring is shaping up to be uh, it's a nice brisk 45 degrees outside today. It's a, uh, it's sunny. It's making me think about popsicles a little bit. You're making me think about popsicles even more. So now I think it's going to, it's going to have to happen. Sometime I think it's going to have to happen starts. because I, I looked, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> We've, I've looked at the calendar and technically this is our last two high pod of the season. Unless, unless we want to finagle it so that when the season ends in April, we do one more two high pod that kind of summarizes the season, which I think we probably should. And if we do, I think a nice way to end it would be with you reviewing the popsicle. Oh, wow. You're the people want on. this, Mark. The people want this. I think the people do want it. And I, the people I are mainly me, but <laughs> I think that's what matters. I will do it. I will do it. I will make sure uh, when I go grocery shopping. Today is Monday. I will go on Wednesday. I'll, I'll set a reminder for Wednesday. I'm writing it down right now. I will actually get out shine popsicles. Now you have to pick a flavor that you actually think you would like. Like it can't just be that I influenced you to get strawberry. You have to pick what fruit you want. And also in ahead of time so that you don't just automatically come back and be like, I don't like chunky fruit. Don't buy the bar, buy the popsicle. Like don't buy the double wide because that has pieces of strawberry or pieces of pineapple or whatever in it. You need to buy the popsicle. So it's just plain like the frozen fruit. 
Okay. Well, I can I can do that then because I yeah you're right I I freaking hate chunky fruit so I will uh I will be sure to get the actual popsicle not the bar. I, I'm looking forward to this. I mean, I can hardly wait for a month from now. Now there's it's just such anticipation for me. <laughs> well, I'm excited too, and I feel like the pressure's on, so I gotta I gotta make it work. But um, I do not have anything to bring up in beverage corner today. I had a lot of coffee and, and water to start my day. Um, nothing crazy. That's the usual. So I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have an even better time next time. Caitlin, this was fun. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to go rate and review the pod over on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, let us know what you think over on Indie Corners as well in the comment section. I should have some draft-related stuff coming out soon because March Madness starts this weekend, but I also have I will be traveling cross-country on Friday. So uh, dependent on that, but we'll see. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Most importantly, have a good rest of your day, and go Pacers.